20 years ago, Omaha Bible Church had outgrown our building at 93rd and 4th Street. And 20 years ago, on a Sunday in July, at Northwest High School, Frank Barber was affirmed and installed as an elder of Omaha Bible Church. If you don't know Frank, Frank and Carol are right over here. Some of you don't know them. Most of you do. Today, we are recognizing 20 years of faithful service for the glory of Christ and for the good of our souls. Today, we are also recognizing the closing of a great chapter for both the Barbers and Omaha Bible Church. I say the closing of a chapter because Frank's work is taking he and Carol away from Omaha to Arizona. So at the end of the service, I'll ask Frank and Carol to join me up here with all of the Omaha Bible Church elders so that we might formally thank them uh, and hopefully encourage them and pray for them uh, as we say our, our goodbyes. In the meantime, what I would like to do is take this opportunity to talk about biblical leadership since that's really what's in front of us. And the passage that comes to mind when I think about biblical leadership uh, is 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, you can find 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, we could be looking at 1 Timothy. We could be looking at 2 Timothy or Titus. The Bible actually has a lot to say about church leadership. But this is a great one. It's a favorite. And when I'm thinking about Frank Barber and the way the Lord has used him here, my mind is directed toward 1 Peter chapter 5. As you're turning there, let me remind you of what Peter would want you to know as we dive into this passage. And that is... Jesus is the chief shepherd. The word for shepherd is interchangeable with the word for pastor. Jesus is the chief pastor. He is the chief shepherd. Therefore, don't ever let anyone other than him occupy first and foremost that chief position. Jesus and Jesus alone is the spiritual leader who is the good shepherd. Uh, Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who gave his life for his sheep. Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who was raised for our justification. Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one who will never let you down and will never break promises. Even the best spiritual leader, the best, as we call them, under shepherds, because they're under the chief shepherd, even the very best uh, will, will let you down and will fail you at times. Let's look to Christ ultimately and yet... Christ himself talks about church leadership that is legitimate, though not perfect. It's under his perfect authority, but it's not perfect. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, we have a sampling of this. And so if you would, let's uh, look together at the opening four verses that deal with leaders, and then verse 5 expands it to all of us, leaders and non-leaders. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, 
For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And now what I would like to have us do is take a little closer look so that we can look to understand better, so that we can look to apply uh, this to how we think and live and function as a church. And so I have eight questions of this passage that I think will help guide us through this passage. And so eight questions of this passage regarding church leadership, spiritual leadership. Question number one, I'm actually going to sneak two questions into number one, but I don't have nine, I have eight. Um, Number one, how important is this? How important is this and why? How important is this and why? Well, we know it must be somewhat important, if not significantly important, in verse one, so I exhort, so I passionately plea. So it's one thing to ask, and it's okay to ask if you're an apostle, but he even adds some some salsa to it, if you will, some oomph to it, if you will, some kick, I plead with you. Uh, he doesn't use the word command, but the idea is compassionate kind of command, even as he's going to talk about coming alongside. So I, I plead with you. I passionately plead with you. So I exhort. I It is a plea, an earnest plea. So I exhort the elders among you. So how important is it? Well, it's above ordinarily important because it's this plea. Pay attention. This is significant. This is important. Then he says in verse 2, there's our command, shepherd, which is the same word for pastor. They're used interchangeably. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. And the four words that I underlined when it comes to how important is this and why are the words, the flock of, the flock of God. You're supposed to shepherd, pastor, care, provide for, protect, keep from danger if you are an elder in a local church. But who are you giving oversight to? Well, they're metaphorically, they're sheep and you're a shepherd. But do notice the flock of God. How significant is it? That means it's significant. It's not your flock. They aren't your sheep. I'll, by extension, say it's not your church. So you, you, you don't have the right. You don't have the freedom. You don't have any of those things. When it comes to this is this matter, this is sober. The flock of God. Think about Jesus giving his life for his sheep, according to John chapter 10. They're my sheep. They belong to me. We also learn in John's gospel, they hear my voice. It's his voice. So how important is this matter of pastoral leadership? Well, it's extraordinarily important because the flock is not the pastors. The flock belongs to none other than Christ. John chapter 10, verse 15, he lays his life down for his sheep. In Matthew chapter 7, we learned there are real dangers for the sheep because Jesus, using the same kind of metaphor, talks about those who wear shepherd's clothing or Some translations, sheep's clothing, but what kind of clothing do shepherds wear? They wear wool from their sheep, so I'm going to take it that way. They dress like shepherds, taking care of the sheep. They dress like shepherds, but in fact, they're wolves on the inside. Shepherds are supposed to protect people from wolves, sheep from wolves, but they actually are wanting to devour the very ones they're faking like they're protecting. So how important is this? It's really important because there are real wolves 
There are real fake pastors, real fake elders who say, I'm going to feed, I'm going to protect, I'm going to give you the words of Christ so you can grow spiritually and grow up and be mature because you do that based upon the words of Christ. When in fact, they just want to devour you, abuse you, take advantage of you. And so how important is this matter? I plead with you. It's important because there are wolves and not only are there wolves, there are fake shepherds who are actually wolves. So to me, this is crucial. This is vital. This is important. We've been learning in Matthew chapter 23 in recent days where Jesus has been addressing the spiritual leaders of Israel, the shepherds, if you will, and he's had to say, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, so many different times. And he's helping the disciples, helping believers, helping the sheep know you can't trust everyone who claims to be a pastor. You can't, cl- she- uh, you can't ship. You can't do that either. <laughs> you can't trust everyone who looks like a shepherd. In fact, when they make converts, Jesus says, they make their converts doubly the sons of hell. I'm going to pick up on that for a second because it sounds bad. But if we're talking about heaven and hell, we're talking about eternal things. And if we're talking about eternal things, this is important. Shepherd, shepherd carefully. It also reminds me about the importance when I think about Jesus addressing false leaders in Mark chapter 6. And he is addressing the false leaders, but then he looks to his own sheep and he says regarding his own sheep, or the, the, the people of Israel, if you will, who were to be shepherded, he says they're like sheep without what? They're like sheep without shepherds. They're like sheep without shepherds, which isn't, which isn't good. And it's because the, those who are supposed to be shepherding them would say they are, but they're not actually. And do you remember what Jesus goes on to say? So fascinating. That's Mark chapter 6, verse 34. They're like sheep without a shepherd, which is tragic. And so therefore he taught them. He taught them. Why would he say that? Well, again, to be built up spiritually, it has to do with knowing who God actually is according to his word, knowing how redemption actually works according to his word. They should have been feeding them, but they weren't. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus teaches them because he is a good shepherd. And shepherds are supposed to give the people, if you will, at least from where I stand, the words of Christ. Jesus is the one who said, my sheep hear my what? My voice. They follow me. So if I'm an under-shepherd, anybody who's an under-shepherd, any elder, any pastor, any overseer, ultimately should be giving you the words of Christ because they, they build you up. Sheep with a shepherd. Sheep with an under-shepherd. Not pointing to themselves, but actually pointing to somebody else. The good shepherd, the ultimate shepherd. So how important is this? Well, it's very important, and it's very important for lots of different reasons. We've looked at some of them. Maybe one more would be, it's important because sometimes I might be confused, or an elder or a pastor might be confused as to what they're actually called to do. Yesterday, I ran into an old friend, a longtime buddy of mine, and uh, he knows nothing about what I believe, and he knows I'm a pastor, and he, he wanted to know when we were going to start doing X, Y, and Z. How can I recruit your church to be part of this? And I said, well, we could talk about that, but actually, that's not actually what, what, what we're called to do. Those are good ideas, and I do some of those things in my personal life, but that's not actually what I've been called to exhort people with when it comes to being a Christian pastor. Well, that was kind of awkward. Who wants to see a lifelong friend you haven't seen in a long time and tell them no? 
Uh, I didn't want to. I wanted to say, well, sign me up. That, that's a good cause. Uh, maybe, maybe we should be doing that. Well, it's important to know that the chief shepherd calls under shepherds to carefully care for the flock so that they're not busy doing all the other good things because there are lots of other good things to do. John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice. I want to give you the voice of Christ if I'm a good shepherd paying attention. Let's move on to another question. Another question, question number two. What is Peter's vantage point? When I'm studying this passage, I think, okay, where, where's Peter coming from and how might that help us? Where's he, what, how does he see all of this? How does he relate to these he's addressing in this local church? Verse one says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder... Oh, this is going to be multidimensional, but let's start there. As a fellow elder, that's his vantage point. He's a peer. He's not a pontiff. He understands. As a fellow elder, I, I get this. I'm one of you. I'm not talking down to you. Uh, I, I'm a fellow uh, overseer slash pastor, as we will see, shepherd. So he's coming from that vantage point. So he knows what he's talking about. He's not just, you know, giving, uh, telling people to do things that he himself doesn't do. As a fellow elder, let's keep going. There's another dimension. His vantage point is from the point of a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Well, that would be different from his audience by and large. I'm telling you these things as someone who saw eyewitness. I always like to say ear witness too. I saw the life of Christ. And I saw his life of suffering. And I saw the ultimate suffering when he went to the cross. With my own eyes, with my own ears, I'm an eyewitness to the whole thing. Why might that be important? He's not asking them to face suffering, hardship, persecution, um, lack of popularity for making hard decisions, of being a good shepherd and telling people no. Just because, and you know what, it may or may not be worth it. Wouldn't it be easier just to Go along to get along. I'm an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. So what I'm telling you is not based upon a fairy tale. If I'm an eyewitness to this, you know what? This is all worth it. This is based upon the historic gospel reality. And if that's the case, you can do anything, at least for a time, to do what's faithful, to do what's right. His vantage point is the vantage point of an eyewitness. His faith is not in faith. His faith is in an actual historic Christ. And he's reminding them that theirs is too, even if they themselves weren't firsthand eyewitnesses. Every elder, pastor, overseer needs to remember that. That's his vantage point. He's a fellow elder, but he's also a historical eyewitness. Let's keep reading. There's another angle to this. As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Why would that be helpful? Well, when things are hard in the here and now, as we're strangers and aliens to borrow from elsewhere in the book, and there's suffering and there's difficulty and there's persecution as we're not in the New Jerusalem, we're waiting for the New Jerusalem, he does want to say, hey, it is worth it because I'm also a fellow partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. You know, just keep, keep this in perspective here when it's hard. My, my, my perspective is, my vantage point is, I, like you, am waiting for the return of Christ. Because when Christ returns, 
There won't be any more difficulty. Let's be faithful. Let's be loyal. Let's be committed in the here and now. And it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. Because it doesn't end with the grave. There is glory. There is salvation. Ultimate salvation, if you will, is the idea that is going to be at the great revelation of the return of Christ. Maybe one more thing about vantage point would be in chapter 1, verse 1, I know we didn't go there, but he is an apostle. And if you're an apostle of someone, you carry their authority as you carry their message. Peter's an apostle of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying here really truly matters as if Christ himself said it. So I love the, I love the, I don't know how to do this with my hands. I love the multidimensionality of the whole thing. He's just like us. Not just like us. And yet, a lot like you. He can speak with authority, but he can also speak as one who is ultimately under the authority of Christ. And not just saying, do this because I say. No, do this because I say, true, as an apostle and eyewitness, but do this because this is what I do. This is the Christian calling for a Christian leadership. Okay, let's move on. We have eight of these, so we better speed it up. Number three, next question. How can this passage help celebrity pastors? (laughs) Tongue-in-cheek and in two words, bug off. Here's what I mean. So I exhort the elders among you. This is localized. As a fellow elder, well, let's go down to verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So that's why I said celebrity pastors bug off. Well, that's a pretty negative way to be. But the idea is care for those who are with you. They're not called to pastor the world. They're not called to pastor all people and give oversight to all people. Uh, Maybe they can help other people, but they're called actually to shepherd the people they know. And, you know, maybe we all start this way. And I like some celebrity pastors, by the way. Um, I've learned a lot from well-known Christians at times. But the longer I'm a Christian, the more I'm in touch with reality, I hope. And I realize that the pastors I like the most are the ones who know me. Sometimes the celebrity pastors are people that we think know they know us because we know them. Because we troll them. And we listen to everything that they ever put out. And, and, it, and then you meet them and you think, they don't even care about me. They don't even know me. And you have this little uh, reality session and you realize, you know, the people who actually care about me the most or who can, speaking personally, are those who pastor me in my own local church. They care more about my soul than people who don't know me. Shepherd those among you. Shepherd those among you. Care for those who are there entrusted to your care. Spiritual leaders need to know that they're not called to pastor the universe, though it might feed my ego kind of nicely. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Let's move on to number four. What does, this, what does this tell us about church leadership hierarchies? What does this tell us about church leadership hierarchies? Again, a little tongue-in-cheek. I'm feeling a little ornery. Um, church hierarchies are bogus. Church hierarchies aren't biblical. Um, we're going to see it in our passage. 
I grew up in a church where uh, there was a big church hierarchy. I don't even know all the levels, but but what I really remember is when I was starting to pay attention in church, confession, um, and I'd profess faith in Christ, and I'm still going to this church, and so I, I went to this meeting with my mom. It was a big ordeal, a major ordeal, because the bishop was in town. The denomination didn't like it that the church um, was more conservative theologically and didn't like what the denomination was doing more liberally theologically. And so they sent the bishop to come set matters straight. And boy, did he have a big necklace. <laughs> I think maybe the biggest necklace, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a gangster style. <laughs> I was like, wow. And this is a long time ago before such things were in. And he was there to be the big dog, to set matters straight because he was above pastors. Well, look at our text. Um, No more family stories. Um, So we have elders in our text. Uh, You don't need to know Greek to understand the Bible, but it's presbyteros. If that sounds like Presbyterian, it's because it should. It comes right over into Presbyterian. Presbyteros, that's the word for elder. And then the next word is shepherd, which is the same word for pastor. And then the next word, exercising oversight, those two words, episcopeo. Sounds like what? Episcopalian. Overseer, or if you're King James Bishop, is the translation. But here's what you should notice, and I hope I don't have to point it out to you. It's pretty obvious. All three titles or functions are related to the same individuals. So that's why we say all the time, and if you're new, this might help you if you come out of a background like I've come out of, a pastor is an elder, an elder is a pastor, is a bishop, or if you aren't using King James, overseer. They're talking about the same people. The book of Acts would support this as well. Uh, Ephesians, or excuse me, uh, 1 Timothy and Titus would complement, but here we have it in our very chapter, all three together, and so it might make you go, huh, wasn't what I was taught growing up. Well, be thankful for the good things you were taught growing up and realize that there isn't this kind of hierarchical structure that we have. Now, by the way, presbyteros, Presbyterians, usually the, the way they, the reason they use those titles, um, it, and it's a good way to use the title because they're, they're signaling to you it's an elder-governed kind of group. So that's a good idea. You're just communicating we're elder-governed. Um, so some people might say, oh, Omaha Bible Church has Presbyterian government. Well, not exactly, but we do have Presbyteros government. Um, we're elder governed. So it gets a little sticky based upon what you mean by these things. Um, Episcopalians are trying to communicate a certain thing about the way they do it with their bishops and such. So I'm not trying to get in. I'm too far in the weeds on this. I just want you, if you're newer to the Bible, or even if you're not newer to the Bible, all three used in the same place of the same people. So, if you want to try this out and see if you're comfortable with it, at the end of the service, if you say, thank you, Frank Barber, for your 20 years of service, just say, thanks, Bishop Frank. Um, And if he shows you his necklace under his shirt, run! (laughs) Run! (laughs) Overseers do pastoring. And they do overseering. (laughs) Okay? And they do things that are supposed to be wise, thus the title elder. You can actually be a younger elder, like Timothy, who's younger, but he's a pastor. 
So I wouldn't over-literalize that. But generally, older people are supposed to be wiser. It's not always true, but it's supposed to be true. So if you have a young elder, that's kind of a contradiction in terms, but there's spiritual maturity even though they're younger. So hopefully we're learning these things and they're helpful. We could go to 1 Timothy and Titus, but we won't. Number five, we have eight of these. What must characterize pastoral, pastoral oversight? What must characterize pastoral oversight? It starts in the negative in verse 2, partially into verse 2. Not under compulsion. What should characterize a pastor doing pastoring? It shouldn't be under compulsion. It shouldn't be forced obligation. We might add, you know, some kind of being guilted into something. Not under compulsion, but willingly. There's the positive. It should be done willingly. So it's not forced. It's not under pressure. It's not guilted. And a great way of summarizing that is at the end of verse 2, as God would, not at the end, middle, as God would have you. Think with me about this. If an individual seems to meet the qualifications, let's just say they do meet the qualifications, First Timothy and Titus, and it appears as if God has gifted them, and there's a need, and God were to say, I would like you to be an elder. You'd say, oh, okay. You gifted me. You gave me the time and the abilities. Uh, I'm, I'm good with that, God. That's the spirit of it. It's not guilted. It's not under duress or force. It's as if God were asking you to do it. That's the kind of attitude you would want to have if you were going to serve in this kind of capacity. And I don't mind you know, throwing this out there, that those are the kind of leaders we would want. They do this because they think God has gifted them. The church sees the giftedness. They are able to do these things. So what's going to cause you to do it? I think the Lord wants me to do this. And obviously, if the Lord wants me to do something, I would want to do that. Then at the end of verse 2, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. It could even be translated freely. Not for shameful gain, not for money, not for status, not for ego. This is super easy to apply when we think about prosperity preachers who are hucksters and shams. And it's so obvious. I don't know why not to everybody, but it should be so obvious. And you say it's for sordid gain. It's for greed. It's for ego. It's for fame. It's for fortune. How disgusting. But a lot of people are misled by it. Hopefully you're not. But this is harder when it's not so obvious. Because sometimes people do leadership things not because there's any money at all. But because they like to tell people what to do. And sometimes it's fun to tell people what to do. Other times it's not. But we don't want true spiritual leaders to be those kinds of people. They're doing this to honor God, to help, to shepherd, to protect, not because they're acting like wolves. And do notice, remember, it's the flock of God. If it's the flock of God that I'm supposed to be overseeing, why, why would I make it about me? Then it says in verse 3, not domineering over, not dominating, not the abusive boss who's yelling and out of control and manipulating, uh, lording it over, some transla- translations might have it, those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
So you're a fellow sheep, even if you are also a leader. So you lead, but you lead as you're an example doing these things. I'm not telling, I'm not barking out orders to you. Um, I'm telling you to do what should be done. And actually it's what I would tell myself to be done because this is Christian living. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's not the only application, but I will for sure say it because it's said so often. If I wanted to be domineering and controlling, I would frequently say things that I think ought not ever be said in the 21st century. I would frequently say, God told me. Because if God is giving me new special revelation, I own you. I can get you to do anything if you actually believe that. In light of Hebrews 1, I don't actually think it's happening. But think about all of the abuse that's done spiritually by people who say, God told me this, God told me this, God told me this. This shows up in counseling, it shows up in one-on-ones, it shows up in different ways. But let's keep in mind here, to characterizing pastoral elder oversight, they're not doing it for shameful gain, they're not domineering kind, gracious. Think about preaching maybe and then we'll move on. Even if, 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 if my preaching is constantly scolding you and it's la, 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 that sounds pretty domineering. I want you to say, Pastor, do you have any good news for us? I thought you were a Christian pastor. Didn't Jesus say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest? I'm not saying there's not any place for loss. You know you need rest. But I heard someone say this past week or two, it was troubling to me. It was a good interview and the person was trying to compliment a pastor, a celebrity pastor. And he said, you know, I think I'm growing spiritually because I've been listening to this pastor and I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I've been listening to this pastor for all of these years and I finally listened to one of his sermons that didn't cause me to doubt my salvation. And I thought, that's terrible. That's awful. I mean, there's a place for doubting your salvation if you're not saved. But seriously? Domineering. Scolding. It's not how a shepherd is supposed to be. A shepherd is supposed to care, provide, protect, actually be trusted doesn't mean there's not ever any correction. doesn't mean there's not ever any rebuking. Please don't hear me out of context. Verse 6, or not verse 6, number 6. We'll go quickly on this one. Another question. What must motivate the church leader? What must motivate the church leader? If it's not the gold, if it's not the fame, if it's not the power to rebuke people and think highly of ourselves, what should motivate us? How about verse 4? And when the chief shepherd appears... The senior pastor, right? The, the ultimate pastor, the ultimate shepherd. We're under shepherds if we're leaders. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. What's the real motivation? The real motivation is one day the chief shepherd, the ultimate good shepherd will return. That's motivation. It's not my flock, not my sheep. I can't do whatever I want to do, so someday I'm going to have to answer to him. So there's kind of the negative side of things. 
When the chief shepherd appears, to the degree that any spiritual leader can remember and actually truly believe that the chief shepherd is going to appear again, they'll be better at shepherding. But then he says, you will receive the un, how does he say it? The unfading crown of glory. The motivation is, someday I'm going to see Christ. And so being a good shepherd is worth it. The hard things are worth it. Not always telling people what they want to hear is worth it. And, and, and doing all the things you need to do, it's worth it because the chief shepherd is going to come back. That's hope. Okay, it doesn't end the way we think it ends, according to the naked eye. And then it says, and so you'll, 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 you'll see Christ. That'll be the best part. But with Christ, inseparable from Christ, would be salvation. Ultimate salvation. He will bring the unfading crown of glory. That's another way of saying ultimate salvation. Yes, it's true we're saved now. Past tense, the Bible speaks of it frequently. But there's another sense in which we will be saved. We're awaiting. We are new creations now, the Apostle Paul says, but we're awaiting the new creation. Okay? We, we sometimes speak in terms of there's this inauguration that's happened, but we're waiting the consummation. This has consummation kind of stuff in view. We're waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. When He comes, First John says, when He comes, we'll be made like Him. So all of this is worth it. All of, even the hard stuff as a Christian is worth it. And he's applying that to pastors. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. And I might say, if to the degree he's addressing, I'm going to take some liberties here, so I'm going to admit it. To the degree he's addressing pastors who are married, I'll bet they shared this with their wives when they got home. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Because sometimes they face the hardest stuff. When he comes, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's do it another week. That's the motivation. Let's do it another week. Number seven, and then eight is conclusion. Number seven, what is the right response to elder oversight? What is the right response to elder oversight? And this is where in verse five, he expands to everybody. So first four verses, leaders, then verse five, everyone, including leaders. What's the right response? Verse five says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. There might be lots of responses, but the spelled out response here is one of being subject, one of, yes, we're spiritual equals, but somebody has to be a leader and you meet the spiritual qualifications according to First Timothy and Titus and First Peter 5. And so therefore, I want to be subject to you in your spiritual leadership. It's the biblical way under the authority of Christ. And so the right response would be, be subject. Be subject to leaders. So there it is. It's important. There are different roles, even in the life of the church. Elders have a unique kind of authority. But hear me out on this, just for balance. I don't want to take away the forcefulness of that. It actually is a matter. It actually is an issue. Hebrews 13 says, it uses the word obey. But I would want to remind you, because I know something about all of the abuse that has happened and maybe continues to happen and will happen, unfortunately, till Christ returns. Spiritual abuse, that is. Just know that pastors have authority that is not authority in all matters. This is why careful Christians in history have said things like this. They've made this distinction. I used it here a lot. I'll keep using it. 
They have ministerial authority. Minister means servant. They have servant authority. They don't have magisterial authority. Protestants have recognized this. I don't have authority in all of your life over everything. I have ministerial authority as I'm under Christ, as a servant of Christ. He's the ultimate servant anyway. As a servant of Christ, I am only having authority in your life if you're among me insofar as it aligns with the word of Christ. He's the chief shepherd. His sheep need his voice. They need his teaching. It is authoritative. And as a servant, I come to you saying, thus saith the Lord, this is what's good for you. This is what's not good for you. And if you say, yeah, but what about this? And it's not a matter that is biblical. What I need to say is, I don't know. Or ask someone else. The Bible affirms general wisdom that we learn from other people, that we learn from history, how things work. The Bible would affirm natural law, how things work, how things operate. I should probably say to you on occasion, if you're asking me, I'll say, what does Consumer Reports say? See, I'm trying to be wise and I want to be wise and I'm telling you I'm not an authority. I don't know. Why would you ask me? Unless I were a cult leader, unless I thought I knew all the answers to all of life's problems and I don't, or unless I thought the Bible addresses every single matter in life and it doesn't. It's all you need by way of special revelation. But the Bible doesn't talk about everything. If it did, you wouldn't need to pray. If it did, we wouldn't have a category for wisdom. You wouldn't need to learn from others. The Bible is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness, and they don't mean general life, what kind of car I should buy. There's a lot of freedom, and I just want to remind you of that. Having said that, when the Bible says, and clearly as it's interpreted, as clearly and applicable, thus saith the Lord, be subject, submit, obey. The other stuff, I don't know. There's a lot of freedom. There's a lot of freedom. Okay, finally, and we'll use this, this as the conclusion. This is the conclusion. What is to characterize all of us? What is to characterize all of us? Verse 5 ends with, clothe yourselves. And he's not talking, speaking literally. Obviously, you, you can't clothe yourself with what he's about to say. We clothe ourselves with clothes. Thank the Lord. Clothe yourselves all of you, so this is universal for leaders too, I might even want to think especially, but for everybody, all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What a great metaphor. As you put on your clothes, as you do that metaphorically, I want you to put on humility. As some have translated it, you put on the apron of a servant. So if I have a servant and I don't, but if I did, they would put an apron on to do things that I wouldn't want to do. And maybe ordinarily people wouldn't want to do. It's dirty. Who wants to get dirty? 
It's a great metaphor. It's a great image. All Christians, leaders, and everybody else should, figuratively speaking, put on an apron, or like this, I guess, to be a servant, to do things that other people don't want to do, and you're helping them. Think about that in our Christian lives. I want to come alongside of you to help you. No, scratch that. Actually, I want to come below you to help you spiritually. And you would want to come below other people even to help them spiritually. It's better than come alongside, willing to serve. And why would this be true for everybody universally? How would Peter know this? Peter would know this because he, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, is seeking to glorify and imitate the servant the servant who served us ultimately, according to Mark's gospel account, according to Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself. And I want to remind you, Christ humbles himself by becoming one of us. So we want to humble ourselves in a different way, but by way of invitation. Remember, Christ is therefore, Philippians 2, highly exalted. And even though we'll never be highly exalted the way Christ is, that would be blasphemous and heresy. The Bible does teach we will be exalted with Him as those who belong to Him, ruling and reigning with Him, co-heirs, the Bible would say, as we've been adopted into His family. And so there is this humble yourself as the ultimate means to appropriate exaltation. We all like to be exalted. We all like to feel good. We like to be important. We like to have what we do matter. Well, actually, the way it's actually going to work is if you humble yourself, Think about Christ and what he did mattered more than anything. And we're Christians and we follow his example. Put on the apron of a servant. If we could only, as we help each other, as we see needs in the body of Christ, think again and again and again and again. Posture of a servant. Posture of a servant. Posture of a servant. Christ would be glorified. He would be made much of it would draw a lot of attention to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a great time in your word, learning, being challenged, being encouraged. Thank you for less than perfect leaders who serve under the chief shepherd, the perfect leader in whom we find our trust. Help the men and women and boys and girls who are here today to honor Christ by looking only to him as the ultimate shepherd and not being, not being confused by that. But help them also to know that there are under shepherds who are to help and to encourage. May it be so in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.